0: everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Death Space Filling the Void. I had a bit of an interesting week. <laughs> Hurricane, or I guess Tropical Storm Elsa, came through last week. Definitely a bit of a, a thunderstorm, but the bigger issue was the tornadoes that were forecast, I guess, that were possible. And then at 2.45am, we started getting those, like, extremely loud emergency notifications on our phones, Jamie and I, and just, like, shooting up to that. <laughs> Makes you feel like you, you're you living and working on a submarine. Jolted out of bed, into action. You don't really quite know what's happening. But, yeah, just got Ollie out of his crate. He was so grumpy. It was so funny. <laughs> he was so unhappy to be... Uh, grabbed Franklin, our tortoise, and we were... Ready to get into the the crawl space. We ended up sitting by the couch, and you could see all the neighbors coming out and and shining flashlights into the sky. You know, it's the middle of the night. You, I haven't really been that close to a tornado, but I imagine you'd be able to hear it. But people were shining their flashlights to try to see if they can see. Well, it's, it's scary. It's funny to think about shining a flashlight at a tornado, but it's done out of fear. So, so thankfully. Uh, There was a tornado that touched down, I guess, like 10 miles from here, the weather report was saying, and and not really any damage. So that's good. That's what we want. (laughs) I've also got some exciting stuff going on. I'm going to be getting back on stage doing some improv comedy down here at Theater 99, Charleston, on Wednesday. I haven't done improv or been on a stage, I mean, before the pandemic. So maybe... Maybe 2019 was the last time. Let's see if I still got it. (laughs) No, but either way, I've got the good kind of nerves, and I always say that those kinds of nerves make you feel like you're alive, so whatever happens, happens. It's improv. got a very exciting episode. I think I I say that every week. (laughs) I'm turning into Conan O'Brien just being like, we've got a great show today. But I mean it. I mean... I'm excited for every episode. And this one's no different. This one was the fall of 2020 when I recorded it. But I spoke with Sheldon Solomon, who's a professor of psychology at Skidmore College. Sheldon and his colleagues study how being reminded that you're going to die affects behavior. And I'm just going to go ahead right now and spoil it. It doesn't make people behave better. (laughs) In fact, it makes people condense their thinking, be less trusting of people outside their quote unquote circle or community, that makes them more violent. So we had a we had a very interesting conversation about how living with the idea of death can at times make people worse. That our fear of death causes us to create meaning and sometimes that that happens in misguided ways. And and we can become intolerant of other people's thinking or or how they choose to live well wow. i don't want to waste any time i want to get right to it if you're liking the show please remember to rate and review it and to check the show out on facebook instagram twitter and youtube my girlfriend jamie created the artwork for this for this podcast and that gives me anxiety and she just did a little bit of a rebrand so thank you to jamie and check out that artwork it's 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 awesome i'm I, it, It's so cool. It captures exactly what this podcast is. Well, all right, let's talk to Professor Solomon. As always, thank you so, so much for listening and enjoy. Joining me now is Sheldon Solomon, who is a professor at Skidmore College. And and we're going to discuss living with the knowledge that we're going to die. Sheldon, thank you so much for joining me.
1: No, it's my pleasure, Pat.
0: Yeah. Let's start with you sort of discussing your research and, and maybe what took you down this road towards death and and, and wanting to learn more.
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, we, and when I say we, I, I mean my buddies from graduate school, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pazinski and I, back 40 years ago or so, Stumbled on a book by a guy named Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. Mm-hmm. And we had never heard of the guy or the book. And in this book, and he won a Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction for it, uh, Becker basically said, Look, you know, people are a lot like everything else that's alive in that we wanna keep staying alive, just like Darwin talked about you know, the mm-hmm. struggle for survival. But then he pointed out that we have this ginormous forebrain that enables us to think abstractly and symbolically, which is awesome because we can imagine stuff that doesn't even exist and then make it real. And that's like totally exhilarating. Uh, and we're also so smart that we realize that we're here mm-hmm also uplifting sometimes, Mm -hmm. uh, but a giant turd in humanity's psychological punch bowl on the other hand, because if you're smart enough to know that you're here, uh, you also know that like all living things, your life is of finite duration and that you too will die. And Becker's point is that that's the most unwelcome news in the history of our species, a, a, a literally unanticipated byproduct of our vast intelligence. and, and But it's not only that we're going to die. You realize that you're perpetually vulnerable to be utterly obliterated at any moment. You know, you can yeah. walk outside and get smoked by a comet or, or a pandemic or uh, fill in the blank. And, and right. what he said was that if that's all that we thought about, you know, I'm going to die someday. Uh, I could walk outside uh, and, you know, get hit by a truck. I'm a breathing piece of defecating meat I'm no more significant (laughs) than a potato or or a porcupine that we we wouldn't be able to get up in the morning. You know, we would be completely debilitated with existential terror. And what Becker proposed is that the way that we manage this potentially debilitating existential anxiety is by embracing what he called cultural worldviews, that um, that humanly created beliefs about reality that we share with other people in our group that uh, reduces death anxiety by giving us a sense that life has meaning and we have value. And and Mm. what Becker said was, whether we're aware of it or not, we spend most of our lives trying to maintain confidence in our cultural beliefs, as well as a certainty that we're valuable persons in the context of that culture. So, anyway, to make this short story long, I, I saw that and I was like, wow, uh, in my gut, I was like, that explains a whole lot, not only about the world around me. But also about myself, I, I've not been a big fan of dying since I was a little kid. I know. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> Every so, step you've taken has to, I know that, to avoid but that. I, but I would never have predicted that. So, you know, I was eight years old when my grandmother died. And I remember the day before she died, my, my mom said, oh, go say goodbye to your grandmother. She's not well. And I knew she was very ill. But then the next day I was ruminating uh, after her death. And I was like, wow, uh, you know, that's a downer. And then I was like, oh, yeah, but wait a minute. That means my mother's going to get old and she's going to die. Oh, man. It's more disconcerting. But then, and this is kind of corny, I used to collect stamps, and I, uh, postage stamps.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'm like looking at my stamps and I'm like, oh, there's George Washington. There's Thomas Jefferson. There's all the presidents. Oh, they're all dead oh, wait a minute, that means there's going to come a time uh, where I, too, uh, will be expired. And I just remember having one of these, uh, you know, really kind of deeply visceral existential reactions. It's heavy, right? I mean, heavy, yeah, which I then buried for a couple of decades back. <laughs> so, uh, but then fast forward, you know, I'm a young professor at Skimore. I see these books by this Ernest Becker dude. Uh you know I called Tom and Jeff uh, and I said you ha- you got to read these this guy. Uh, these ideas are are really potent and they addressed questions that we and a lot of other psychologists were interested in at the time. But what really got us going on our research frankly Pat is that other psychologists hated these ideas and they wouldn't publish any of our papers where we just tried to describe Becker's ideas to other academics—they just why is that? Well, they, two things. One is is that well, what a lot of a, a lot of psychologists were um, skeptical because Becker's ideas come from psychoanalysis and existential philosophy, mm-hmm. and uh, academic psychology was trying to establish itself as a credible science. Mm, and so okay. what some people said was, okay, this is interesting, but I, I, just, I just don't see how you could test these ideas. How could you provide evidence to uh, demonstrate that they're true? And then other people, they just said, well, no, nah, this has got to be bullshit because I don't think about death that much or I'm not afraid about death. And, of course, we didn't make any friends when we would say to people, well, you're not afraid about death uh, because you're comfortably ensconced in your particular view of the world from mm. which you derive a sense of world, uh, a sense of meaning and value. And that's why you're not afraid of death. But, of course, that's not a good way to win an argument because I'm basically saying you either agree with me, in which case. It's
0: right, <laughs> or you or got your head in the sand.
1: Yeah. <laughs> In which case i'm right <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, that's that's when we started to do our, our research which was really at first disarmingly simple we we just said let's let's bring people into the lab mm-hmm. a- and under the guise of a study of personality attributes mm-hmm. a- and Uh, And we'll have people fill out a bunch of questionnaires that were basically to distract them from the true purpose of the study. And then right in the middle of it, uh, there's these two open ended questions. It's like, please, please briefly describe uh, your thoughts and feelings about your own death and and jot down a little bit about what might be going on in your head uh, as you're physically dying. And as you might imagine, that brings your own death momentarily to mind. We call that mortality salience. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, other people in a control group, we ask them the same questions, but instead of asking them about dying, we ask them um, how, how would they feel about being in terrible pain or being in a car accident and having their leg cut off. All terrible things, but not fatal, because we want to demonstrate that whatever we find has to do uniquely with concerns about your own mortality.
0: Okay, and, but, but not, so So you're scaling on one side, death, this is it, this is the end with something horrific,
1: horrific uh, an injury. Not fatal, that's okay. exactly right. Okay. And what we figured was, well, if this Becker dude is right, if our beliefs about reality, and if our self-esteem is it serves in part to help us manage death anxiety. Then when you're reminded that you're going to die, you should cling vigorously to your cultural belief system. And we should be able to determine that by measuring your reactions to other people around you. Because if people who share your beliefs or who support your beliefs, you should like them more after you're reminded of death. But people who are different, uh, or who are opposed to your beliefs, uh, you should hurt or, or harm them uh, more <laughs> after you're reminded that you're going to die. Right. And that's precisely what we found. So our original interest was how could this help us understand why people can't get along with other people that don't share their beliefs about reality. Uh, and the Becker point is that when you run into somebody different, you've got a problem. Because if you accept the validity of their beliefs, you're essentially undermining the confidence with which you subscribe to your own. Oh, okay. So, because if I believe God created the earth in six days, that's awesome to like go to uh, the Yoruba in Nigeria and they believe that. Oh, the Earth was created. I no, that's the Mali. Uh, ooh, ooh, ooh! I can't even go. I'm going to mess this up. So let me go with the Borneo and South Pacific, because somebody's going to be listening and and check <laughs> it out. So the Borneo and the South Pacific, they believe that the Earth was created out of a giant coconut. Well, it, you know, if you if but if the Pina Colada people are right, then the Six Day people have have got to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and so Becker's point is whether we're aware of it or not. When we encounter people who are different, we denigrate them, we dehumanize them, we try to coax them to adopt our beliefs, and if that doesn't work, just fucking kill them. Thus proving that our God is superior after all. And I so, think you
0: just described all of human history from unfortunately the Crusades back.
1: Yeah, no, Pat, and in this uh, amazing book, Escape from Evil, Becker says you know what, this may sound horrific, but most of the evil in the world is the product of people claiming that they're ridding the world of evil. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow. And by the way, this stuff, uh, I was overwhelmed by these ideas. I took a leave of absence from Skidmore for a year, because that's my reaction. I was reading this stuff and I'm like, wow, that's the whole history of humankind. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it's not about me so much as we then did studies, uh, and sure enough, like, for example, when we reminded Christian participants of their mortality, they liked fellow Christians more, but they hated Jewish people. And this Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with Christians per se. In Israel, if you remind Jewish people they're going to die, they like Jewish people a lot more. And they hate Arabs. Uh, when you say like, how are you finding
0: that, right? So you're yeah. they're asked the question, nice. yeah, how are you presenting that?
1: Yeah, really, really great. So in the lab studies, these are um, simply self-report instruments. So for example, there might be a bunch of people in the room, uh, and they may seem very similar, except that you learn that some of them come from Jewish families and other come from Christian families. and, and Ben, I think we use something called an interpersonal judgment scale, uh, which is how intelligent do you, do you think this person is? How friendly do you think they are? How much oh, do like okay. to be their friend? So that's one way of assessing enthusiasm or disdain. Okay. There are others, though. So a very clever German colleague, he reminded German participants about their death or something unpleasant. And then he just brought him into a room uh, where there was somebody sitting in a line of chairs. Let's say there's nine chairs and there was a person sitting in the fifth chair right in the middle. And, and that person either looked like a German or like a Turkish immigrant. Mm-hmm. And the, a, the long short story is that Germans reminded of their mortality. They sat closer to people who looked German and they sat further away from people who looked different.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, other studies even more, I think, profound and profoundly unsettling. We did some work with an Iranian colleague, Pat, this was in the aftermath of September 11th, 2001, uh, where we found that Iranians reminded of their mortality. They became more supportive uh, of suicide bombing and more willing to become a suicide bomber. I don't know if that makes you as nervous as I. Incredibly so. Incredibly so. Now this will make you even more nervous because as you know, Americans are practical. We're not gonna blow ourselves up, but we're happy to blow up other people. So in the US, when we reminded Americans that they're gonna die, they were more supportive of using biological, chemical, and nuclear weapons against countries who pose no direct threat to us. My like, goodness. And that was particularly true of Americans who identify as politically conservative. Mm-hmm. And just think about the implications of that. Like in the present moment, we're in the middle of a pandemic uh, where death is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we're noticing is that. All of the things that we find in our studies, that death makes people more racist, racist; it makes them more xenophobic, uh, makes people drink more, makes people watch TV more, it magnifies uh, levels of pre-existing psychological disorders, all of these things are uh, increasing now. Uh, because we would suggest that the pandemic is basically a real-life reminder of death.
0: Oh, my gosh. Uh, I have There's just so much we can discuss. I mean, op- to be quite open with you, during the pandemic, I, I would say I've certainly increased my drinking and, and certainly increased and, and tried to find Ways, I mean, I mean, is that just flat out a coping me- mechanism for being reminded of my own port- mortality? I mean, there could be layers and, and uh, things absolutely. going on
1: there. Well, no, no, I like your style, Pat, because I think there's an important point to be made here. When Becker or when we say that death anxiety is a very potent determinant of uh, human affairs, that's not to imply uh, that. It is exclusively so, I think sure. we should be wary of monolithic explanations for mm-hmm. anything because it, it it could be existential anxieties, it could be boredom mm-hmm. but 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 i'm i'm going to guess based on just studies where um people are more apt to consume alcohol when they're reminded of death. Uh, people who smoke cigarettes, not only that they smoke cigarettes, but one of our students measured how hard they suck on them. And after death reminders, uh, you know, you're like, uh, you know, really I- inhaling. So no, I think that, yeah, I-, I mean, I'm packing my cheeks with candy and certainly, <laughs> <laughs> certainly yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, it's arguably difficult
0: not to given all the anxiety related to job loss and, you know, outside of death, like we said, you know, there's that's a, right. there's a full rainbow of, of issues that we're all going
1: through. No, that's absolutely right. But you make a good point that my buddy, Jeff Greenberg makes a lot, Pat, and I think it's worth mentioning. And that is that, uh, you know, these anxieties associated with job loss, w- we shouldn't uh, make light of that because you mm-hmm. might say, Oh, well, you're not dead but you know what, psychologically you kind of are. In a world, our world, which I'm not particularly proud of, uh, where everyone is measured by what they have and what they do, we've got a large chunk of humanity that no longer has a stable and secure income. Even more devastating potentially is they don't even have an identity. Uh, If you're in the Mm. service industry, Uh, Well, uh, what you used to do may no longer even exist. So besides not eating, when somebody says, well, uh, you know, what do you do? The answer is presently no thing. And uh, you could not be more psychologically vulnerable on top of being socially isolated than our current conditions.
0: I've always hated that question, right? You go to a dinner party, and that's the question that goes around. I've been looking for a replacement. If, if you have one, I would be certainly because I never liked the idea of us defining ourselves by well, what we
1: do. Well, that's right. Or, but, but, you know, that's a, that's an awesome point, Pat, because I like the question, what do you do? But, but what I, and, and I do the same when you ask somebody, what do you do? I usually say, well, I'm, um, a teacher but Mm -hmm. you didn't ask me to reduce myself to a vocational stereotype Mm -hmm. i i just did that because that's almost the mandated reaction in our particular world Mm -hmm. Uh, you know so i i am a, a teacher and i also play bad guitar i'm a pretty decent cook i like pets and, mm-hmm. and I if, wear my heart on my sleeve and I ride a Harley. You know? Yeah. Like, oh, and, you know, I looked at your website it would make a mockery of you to try and reduce what you do to a single activity. You know, I, uh-huh. I would propose and I mean it as a compliment that you're a bouillabaisse of actions that can't be uh, neatly uh, encapsulated in any particular noun or verb. So I, you, you're quite right.
0: Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's, that, yeah. Thank you for that. That's very nice of you to say. I, you know, I finally, I I usually just boil it down to uh, just journalists again, partially to deflect uh, discussing myself too much in, in a social environment. Yeah. Gosh, I have to say one of the more startling things from, from what you're describing is the notion that a reminder of our death makes us more violent when you know, I was raised Catholic, I'm no longer uh, really a practicing Catholic, and not to put every religion in one box, but typically we find that they tell us to do well onto another, right, to respect another person, and and this is in direct opposition to that. Yeah. I just find that to be so remarkably scary.
1: (laughs) No, it is scary. You know, religions are, uh, you know, both a blessing and a curse. Uh, mm-hmm. In that, uh, at their best, and there's good. I say this as a not um, in any way religious person, but recognizing the potential value uh, of uh, a religious worldview at its best, because um, it can bring out. The best in people, but it surely also brings out the worst, and that therein lies the problem. It's a woman called Karen Armstrong. I think she used to be a nun, and then she became a historian. And she wrote a book called *The Battle for God*, where she's like, "Yeah, you know, almost every religion. If people actually did what the religions preached, life on earth would be as it is purported to be in heaven, with regard to." The idea that we're supposed to take care of each other. What other folks have pointed out is that that's always only referred to the in-group. Uh, and, mm. um, and so death reminders, by the way, they can make us more noble, helpful, and heroic towards folks who we identify as being members of our tribe. Mm -hmm. And so it really cuts both ways. And uh, for me, as I think about it right now, you know, one of the horrors of the present moment in our country, for example, is that we're we're just no longer Americans. See, there used to be the, you're too young. How old are you, Pat? I'm 34. But first, I can't even add. So you were in, you, yeah, you well, you might remember September 11th. Uh, oh, yeah.
0: My, my father was
1: in the towers. I was in 10th
0: grade. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay. Yeah, I was there that day also. Well, do you remember how right after that, everybody was American? flags were everywhere. It was, uh, I want to say oddly, it was pleasant that we were all finally united. I thought so. I thought uh, so. Uh-oh. But... This is no longer the case. This is not meant to be a political diatribe, although I'm happy to make it one. But I think when we look back historically, what what will be clear is that one of President Trump's biggest failings was that he never actually started to be president. He announced that he was running for reelection in 2017, on the day of his inauguration. Right. Then he proceeded to give a bombastically divisive inauguration speech. At no point did he ever say, we're all Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, the, the, the death anxiety, it could push us in multiple directions. Uh, and, uh, but. Uh, To the extent that we identify with the folks around us, it generally makes us uh, more helpful and generous. And so the hope is, is that we can Aikido some of these phenomenon uh, towards more pro-social reactions.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I guess because if people are more aware of this going on internally, they may, like we have the intelligence to push beyond it.
1: Let's hope so. I think that's a really very fine point because a a lot of times people say, well, okay, so you do these experiments. I I get it. You remind me I'm going to die and I sit further away from somebody because they look different. Or you remind me that I'm going to die and um, I, I drink a lot more or so on and so forth. Well, so what? Well, The hope is, and this is an ancient idea, it goes back to Freud who said, well, if you're aware sometimes that you're engaging in a psychological defense, that gives you the opportunity, as you put it, to just step back and and to reflect from time to time uh, about whether or not things that are happening uh, might be uh, the result of that. So we, we were talking earlier, Pat, when I'm like, oh, uh, you know existential anxieties that are engendered by the pandemic are like giant death reminders and you're like wow uh, I, I I've been drinking a little bit more mm-hmm. and 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 you did step back you're like wow could that have been because of death anxiety mm-hmm. and i I would submit that on the this is the process by which we're able to gain uh, some control over our lives psychodynamically uh, in light of these ideas. You know, like Albert Camus, the existentialist dude. Love Camus. Love Camus. So he says, come to terms with death. Thereafter, anything is possible. And it's one of my favorite lines because, sure, an overstatement, perhaps, Mm -hmm. but, but... I, I think it's, an, an, uh, it's really a call to all of us to be humble enough to consider the possibility uh, that some of uh, who we are and what we do is not as it appears to be. That, uh, it, it's, really, it's, not, it's not that you're a twitching reflex and everything that you're doing is a reaction to the horror of the inevitability of death. But then again, more than you'd like to admit may on occasion be creeping in. And yeah, that's kind of the point that we try to make um, where it's like, you know, death anxiety is not going to go away. In fact, it's not going to go away, nor should it if you didn't if you were not anxious about death. You know, you'd be three weeks old. Your parents would be at some Grateful Dead concert, and get <laughs> two weeks, and you'd be That's like, a "Funny oh, no, <laughs> yeah. no. If you weren't anxious about dying, you'd be summarily uh, deposed from the gene pool in short order. So, right, and so the 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 question is, uh, is to is to think about how much death anxiety am I? burying under the psychological bushes, you know, repressing. And and it's when we repress our anxiety that it comes back to bear malignant fruit, you know, in the form of, uh, you know, racism and xenophobia Mm -hmm. and our discomfort with our bodies and the world around us. And and so that's kind of our take-home message. Yeah. On the one hand, to be somber because the Ernest Becker dude, at the end of his life, he said, "I don't even know if we're a, a viable uh, form of life." That that death anxiety at, at our worst, you know, it turns us into like you know hateful, war-mongering, mm-hmm. proto-fascist, plundering the planet, you know, and kind of a, a rapacious uh, shopping, twittering, Facebook mm-hmm. stupor. And, uh, you know, and if we don't do anything about it, we may be the first form of life to extinguish ourselves. On the other hand, we can turn that right around and we could say, yeah, but look, we have a great track record. Humans have a great track record of making extraordinary progress once we understand what's going on. Right. So true. Yes, so true. You know, we wanted to learn how to fly, and the ancient Greeks, they put on, like, wax wings and jumped off a mountain. No, that didn't work out too well. (laughs) Then the Wright brothers, you know, did it in an aerodynamic tunnel, Mm -hmm. and they figured it out. Now we all fly around. Everybody was dying from plague, Mm -hmm. and we thought it was from evil spirits. And so we would do exorcisms, but that didn't help. And then they figured out that it was bacteria. So one hopeful possibility is that we might begin to collectively recognize as individuals and as a society, the tremendous proportion of unsavory human activities that appear to be driven by death anxiety, and which then gives us the opportunity as you put it earlier, it, it's really to make the best of our reflective powers uh, as conscious and rational creatures uh, to kind of nudge uh, our species in a, a more benevolent direction.
0: Yeah, keep it moving forward.
1: Keep moving forward. There you go. Yeah. Can
0: Excel be my friend? It's funny, uh, moving to Charleston and, and having to try to make friends as an adult. You know? On the playground you'd say, can you be my friend? And it would work. Now it's so hard to find friends. Are they gonna like what you like? Are they gonna try to dominate the conversation? Are they gonna want to hang out too often? Because that's the problem too. (laughs) Well, my software tutor can can't help you make friends as an adult, but they can help you with Excel. Uh, Can Excel be my friend? Many people have wondered this for years. The answer is yes, it can. My software tutor offers three levels of real-time Zoom-based courses with a live instructor. Watch, they start offering a class on making friends as an adult, like a master class. (laughs) Don't talk too much, but you still have to bring something to the conversation. I mean, and that's after you initiate i feel like initiating the conversation as an adult to try to be friends or see if you want to be friends is awkward <laughs> but also why is there why is there the mentality that's like i'm all set on friends i'm you know i met everyone i was going to meet 15 years ago and now we're just waiting to die <laughs> i'm just waiting for the roster to trim these courses will increase your marketability whether you're an employee job seeker Consultant or contractor. Register at mysoftwaretutor.com and use the promo code POD20 to save 20% off all registrations. And then we got the Cardist Studio. There are no words to comfort in a time of deep loss, but you send a card because you care. Exactly. What we've learned with this podcast reach out. You have to say something, but don't try to fix it. Just acknowledging your presence. You're not going to fix it. And sometimes it can be difficult to know what to say, and that's where the Cardist Studio can be really helpful. Introducing a writing specialist for the message inside your condolence card. The Cardist Studio creates your message, writes it in the card, and mails it for you. All you do is pick the card and tell why you're sending it. No anxiety, all care. For a message from your heart, but not your hands. Sit back and just support your relationships. I love that. I love the idea of you may feel awkward or, or not know what to say, but the cardist knows what to say. Keep it nice and simple and heartfelt, and you won't commit the, the biggest mistake, which is leaving a friend hanging, uh, a person who's, who's grieving, needs your support, and, and a handwritten card is, uh, it, mean, it means a lot. It means a lot. I received one of these when my grandfather passed away and it was very touching. So I can certainly speak from experience. TheCardistStudio.com. Thoughtful, just got easy. And you can use the promo code DEATHPOD for 10% off all orders. Something interesting came as you were making uh, your last point. Uh, You talked about repressing death anxiety, but at times you've also discussed almost distracting yourself where's the line between repression and distraction
1: yeah let me know when you get that (laughs) (laughs) so i don't expect you to answer
0: because it's it's you know could be different to every person but it is interesting to think that like if you're pushing more into your tribe quote unquote uh there's a tipping point where you're not being helpful you're you're being harmful and and you've come full circle back towards it that's right and that's very interesting and frightening and probably why we have therapists to help people with that yeah i also want to go back to religions i have mentioned and and i've thought about my interest in i don't like being put into a box but i in some senses i am a bit agnostic and that's due to the fact that I think it's almost arrogant to think that I could understand everything about the universe and God. And, and there was a quote that particularly stuck out to me. I think it was in a book by Deutsch, is the last name, who said that human understanding of what's happening in, in the universe could be like uh, a gorilla trying to understand what the stratosphere is, right? Yeah. that there's they, they couldn't contemplate it. And although we have... The, such a highly functioning brain the universe is under no obligation to make any sense to me right what, what am I owed I'm not owed anything right. uh, and, and yet I feel like ag- agnostics will get even more rage where it's like well you got to choose like, you got to put yourself in a box <laughs> you know what I'm saying
1: yeah no I'm with you I, I would uh, you're uh, you're holding out for an agnosticism that's more eclectic and ecumenical yeah Um, and uh, no i'm with you on that i i I think to be otherwise and and there's epistemologists you know people that study these things Mm -hmm. that would probably take ardent issue with both of us but i am of the view that um not in a position to rule anything out in an in a priori fashion, so yeah. I, I find some flavors of atheism to be just as dogmatic and uh, ultimately unfortunate uh, as the uh, fundamentalists on the other side of things. Right.
0: Yeah. The the yeah. It's almost like the more you dig in, yeah, you're doing exactly what we've been describing as as you're you've now just created another tribe.
1: Yeah. There you yeah. go. And in fact, and this is just, it's like, this is trivial pursuits for a barroom chatter, but, you know, there are people who have done studies where if you remind religious people that, well, so no, let me do another one. So if you have religious people that believe in the Bible is literally true, and if you show them passages in the Bible that are logically inconsistent, so they can't both be true, Mm -hmm. and then if you measure... It's called implicit death thought accessibility, but that's just psychobabble for how readily thoughts about death come to mind unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Religious people shown inconsistencies in the Bible, death thoughts come more readily to mind because the argument is that you're challenging their worldview. Mm-hmm. and crushing their defenses. And so here's all this unconscious death thoughts that now comes cascading uh, almost into awareness. Well, the same thing happens if it, in experiments. If you show atheists like a fake study from Harvard suggesting that Jesus may actually have existed, well, then they have death thoughts that come more readily to mind. The point being that atheism is just another belief system. Right. You know, atheists are like, oh, you bastards are deluded, but we have direct access to the truth, and you put it better, which is, no, you're just a different tribe. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I mean, deep down, everyone's a little bit nervous that, uh, you know, they're going to pass on and the pearly gates are going to be there. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And, And even atheists, if you measure their affection for supernatural beliefs unconsciously, when if you remind them that they're going to die and if you ask them if God exists, they become less confident. They'll be like, no way God exists. But if you measure their unconscious beliefs in the supernatural, they become more attracted to it. So oh, even man. atheists want to have a hedge.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly.
1: Right. Just like an, uh, an investing
0: portfolio. You, you, you want to diversify. Um, Let's I mean we were talking a little bit about this but I want to talk about living with the idea that you're going to die and and for some more than others that may be present due to an illness or uh someone around them falling ill or or what have you what comfort is there for a person who feels
1: the weight more often than someone else yeah this is uh, an area that we know less about than we'd like to or should, Um, and so what we know is that there's a lot of reactions to those difficult circumstances. So a a lot of folks who are terminally ill or uh, just towards the end of their lives chronologically are, are, uh, are quite adversely affected by uh, their difficult conditions. Uh, and so there's a, a guy named Eric Erickson, one of Freud's disciples, and he talked about, he wasn't talking about illness, he was just talking about end of life in general. Mm-hmm. And he made a distinction between what he called despair and ego integrity. And he just said some people, and and by the way, this isn't judgmental. And he was very clear that this is not Uh, uh, he says, look, as some people get older, uh, they they get uh, bitter and angry, and they think that life has less meaning. and, And they really wish they could have another life and a different kind of life. And they're really incredibly afraid of dying. But not everybody goes in that direction. There are other folks who, in response to illness, or just in response to old age, they think life just gets better and better mm-hmm. e- even in the wake of tremendous illness and great pain and, and it gets m- more meaningful uh, and th- when you say to them well you know what about dying they're like yeah of course I'm apprehensive uh, about dying but but i accept this as a perfectly reasonable price to pay uh, for the privilege of having been alive in the first place. Uh, and How moving is that? Really moving, and yeah. I, I, you know, my goal uh, as I'm in my early Mr. Magoo phase is <laughs> to end up uh, as because I don't think it's an either or. Uh, I'm I'm more of the persuasion that we kind of vacillate, but you know. Sure, sure, on sure. On. And, and I, I wanna. Uh, uh you know be able to a- end my life with that that kind of grace a- and humility because folks in that state of mind uh they also get to a point in their lives where they're like yeah I- I've done enough a- and a- and I don't need to be rich and famous I'm now more concerned about what I can do for other folks either directly in terms of material support for my friends or family or or can I leave some kind of legacy? Mm-hmm. And this doesn't mean, uh, you know, we're all going to be, uh, like Steve jobs, you know, and invent the iPhone. Uh, you can leave a legacy, you know, by planting an apple tree. Nobody knows that you do it, but somebody's going to chomp on that apple one day. Yeah. That's because uh, of your efforts. And uh, so that that's a, a great question that is not yet in my mind completely understood specifically uh, what dictates which way we go in the wake of those conditions.
0: Yeah, Uh, it's incredibly interesting, right? Like one is someone looking at their plate and realizing, oh, I only have one bite left and the other person going, oh, that bite's going to be wonderful.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: So I've been trained in improv comedy. Uh, I've done that quite a bit here in New York. And one of the things they teach you is to not fight, to actively not fight in the scene, to enjoy your partner, whatever your partner is sending your way, and and to view it as a gift. And that's helped me. I brought that to my life, where find the good in the person, find the good in the moment, find the good, you know... being okay with being on the last hole of an 18 round uh, uh, course that is your life is a little heavier than than someone, you know, making a a crazy choice in an improv scene. But I think there is something to the idea that we can make that choice a, a little bit, in some
1: sense, right, we can try to shift our minds
0: uh, do you agree with anything well, like Yeah, that? A, no, yeah. Uh,
1: Absolutely. I'm not saying that I'm up to this yet.
0: <laughs> it's uh, it's certainly but, hard.
1: Yeah. No, it is certainly hard. Uh, and I, I think though, that that's what we need to remind ourselves. Again, it may sound, a, 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 you know, may sound silly, but that's, that's what life is about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's about striving and it, Certainly is hard, yeah, from time yeah. to time.
0: I like the idea of, of viewing life as striving, like right I feel like till the day i die i'll have i 'll die trying to improve my French or you know mm-hmm. trying to read more than twelve books a year, or you know it, it just yeah. always the constant pursuit of, of bettering while also finding a way to enjoy the passage of time.
1: Yeah. Perfect. So now, you know, so s- stop right there. There it is. You just said all we need to know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, and I, 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 I love that. Um, yeah. back, back to our buddy Camus, because in his rendering of the myth of Sisyphus, I don't know if you know that myth where the guy pushes the fucking rock up the hill, For every-
0: all of eternity. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and that's supposed to be torture. But in Camus' telling of the myth, he's like, oh, you know, wait a minute. The guy's pushing the rock up the hill. You know, maybe he's looking around and he's seeing that it's a a lovely day. and Outside, he's working his legs. He's getting getting (laughs) exercise. In the the last line, he says, I have to conclude that Sisyphus was happy because it is the striving. You Mm -hmm. know, ditto for Faulkner. I don't know if you know any William Faulkner books. Yeah. But, you know, it's all about like killing and raping and slavery and, 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 and racism. And yet when Faulkner wins the Nobel Prize in his acceptance speech, which is, you know, just amazing. It was the most upbeat thing ever. It's like, uh, you know, I write these books because my point is, is that uh, we, will, uh, we will prevail. Uh, not over other people, Uh, we will prevail uh, as a a life form. Uh, And yeah, that I think um, that it's, um, you know, it's like, wow, in some ways we have perhaps been hoisted on the petard of our own intelligence because we go to such extraordinary lengths to try to figure out, you know, who am I? What should I do? And you said it better than most of the sages in history where you're like to enjoy the passage of time (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean that's it right like (laughs) no that is it and uh, i'm saying it to remind myself because sometimes it's like we make it too complicated for those of us you know that slept inside last night and had lunch you know uh, it's like, yeah, it's on us to be able to Certainly. be able to derive some semblance of um, affirmation from those circumstances. You know, but the Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, who was a resistance dude in, the, uh, you know, World War II, you know, he talked about being imprisoned. And he's like, yeah, you can chain me to the wall, but you can't chain my brain. So I like this idea, even if it is, is a, a kind of worn one, that regardless of our circumstances, uh, we still have a palette of options uh, that most of us, on the one hand, crave, and yet, on the other hand, shy away from. We love to have choices. Uh, except when we actually have to make one and then we're choking on choices to the point where (laughs) paralyzed with indecision. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation before we move
0: towards an ending. I'm wondering if there's anything you feel uh, we've omitted. Is there anything we're missing here?
1: No, Um, not, not um, unless something occurs to you, in which case come back and find me. I I like, how you're thinking about these ideas. And I also appreciate your take on them. And now I I have nothing to add except to just really point out how important I think what you all are doing. When I mean you all, I mean young people just smashing in the best way together all of these different mediums Mm -hmm. moving ideas around so like i'm an academic you know i write these articles they're non-pharmacological interventions for insomnia you know maybe six people read them and i I like the work that i do but we're we're egghead experimental types I'm, i'm thrilled that i don't even know how i get to talk to you all to be talking to young folks, um, you know, you said you were a journalist, I go on your website, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, you're a writer, you're an actor, you're a comedian, uh, and uh, and of course you want to make a living, and that's also to your credit, by the way, but I couldn't also help but notice you want to make a living by being in the middle of disseminating uh, cutting-edge ideas that Uh, you know, again, at the risk of sounding like Mary Poppins are directed at helping people at at a time when they can certainly use it. And I see what uh, you're striving to do uh, as one of the most effective uh, platforms uh, for moving ideas around. And I see these ideas as particularly worthy uh, of promotion not because they're anything to do with me. None of them have anything to do with me. I read books and I'm like, this is a good idea. And, mm-hmm. and So it's like, yeah, good idea. Pass it on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Um, you know, uh, it it is my hope that people will listen to these and, and find an ounce of comfort uh, that they didn't otherwise have. Because, yeah, like you said, particularly now, We could all use, and it's comforting to know that other people feel same. Absolutely. They feel the same way. They have the same fears. Uh, You know, we've described different tribes, but we're all one tribe. And and there's one common experience that we all have. And that's a, a question of how we handle death.
1: Yeah. And that's the key. In my opinion, uh, not to sound uh, hysterical, but if you if if, if the question ever arises, uh, you know, what do we need to do if humanity's gonna be around for a bit? It's one tribe, one tribe. Yeah, I get agree. that website, or because you know, I love how you put it. It's really, it's the key in the long run, and you made it, you made that point in a lovely way, Pat. It, it's really, it happens to be true. We're all in it together right now. I like how Martin Luther King put it in the letter from Birmingham jail. He's like, the world is a whole lot smaller. Uh, we are all interdependent and the quicker we realize it and exploit that fact to our advantage, the better off we're all going to be. Amen. Amen.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I, I want to give people an opportunity to connect with you or,
1: or... Uh, are there any books
0: that you've written that you wanted to mention?
1: Yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to. Uh, but basically, uh, we've written a lot of little articles and stuff. Our, our last book is called The Worm at the Core uh, on the Role of Death in Life. And it describes uh, our, our work. And uh, I work at Skidmore College. You guys know how to use the Internet. Feel free to email me if you'd like to exchange ideas or see any of the work that we
0: I love it. Well, thank you very much and, and stay well.
1: Awesome, Pat. Thanks for having me. You got it.
0: It's a bit daunting, right? A bit daunting to learn how so much of human history could be explained by just a fear of death, (laughs) but there is some goodness in there, right? That if we know that's true, maybe we can fight through our biases and, and, know mentally what we're doing and and try to improve upon it and just be nicer to one another we've all got a lot going on we're we're grieving we've got stress at work we're in our mid-30s and we're trying to make friends in a new city we just moved <laughs> you never know what someone's battling well thank you so much for listening I want to mention my other podcast that gives me anxiety it's a show about Things that scare us make us nervous and anxious, and and we talk about a specific topic every week, and and we find that things usually aren't as scary as we think. Real nice. Season 2 of that show will be coming out in a few weeks. I'm really excited about that. If you have a chance to rate and review Death Space Filling the Void, that'd be super helpful. And I wonder how I'm going to do an improv on Wednesday. It already happened by the time this episode comes out on Thursday, but this is before that. (laughs) well thank you so so much for listening have a great week and I'll talk to you next Thursday